Hello, this is Chris O'Regan, and you're listening to The Sausage Factory. This is episode 480 of The Sausage Factory. In this episode, I interview Frederick Prenter and Julian Seifert Olszewski of Pugstorm Games and ask them about how they created their underground exploration survival game, Core Keeper. I do speak a lot in this episode, and for that, I do apologise, but there's a reason for it. There is a lot to Core Keeper, so much that to summarise it in half an hour is not an impossible. But we try. We really do. The best advice I can give to you is to have a go at the demo or something. It's just an exceptional game. But there's so much to it. It's just like any survival game. You, the more you put in, the more you take out. Well, one of the biggest things, biggest takeaways I have from playing Core Keeper is the use of lighting. And we do talk about this in the show. It's like... They made lighting, the emission of light and being able to see, a resource. Just incredible stuff. And there's much more to Core Keeper than that. But yeah, that's the biggest takeaway I have with the game. So without further ado, let's listen to me from the relatively recent past. Talk to Julian and Frederick about the creation of Core Keeper. Chris, take it away. Hello, Julian and Frederick. Hi, Chris. Hello, Chris. Could you tell us who you are and what you do? Yeah, should I get started, Julian? Yes. Yeah, so my name is Frederick Prentare, and uh, I'm the CEO and game director at Pugstorm. So I do a lot of the high-level game design and strategizing, uh, including recruitment and all that. So that's basically what I'm doing. I'm Julian Zeifert Olszewski, and I'm the art director at Pugstorm, the lead artist on Corekeeper. So I'm basically making sure that all the artists are working for us and the art that I do, it all goes in the same direction. It all follows the same visual style and that 
the game basically looks coherent in whatever graphics we add to it. I'm also the narrative designer for Corekeeper. So I'm writing, writing the lore, the item descriptions, and make sure that the story can fit the design we have in Corekeeper. Nice. Nice. It's um, certainly your fault then, how things look. And it's all very, yeah, yeah, the lighting. Wow. Wow. But we'll come on to that later on in the show. So how did you make your start making video games? All right. So I started, I, I started very early by drawing Super Mario levels on just paper with my brother, you know, when I was like three years old or something. And from there on, I just expanded. I started making uh, levels uh, in games like Hero 3, Mighty Magic. Yeah, I remember playing a lot of Rollercoaster Tycoon, the first one when that came out. You know, that was kind of my first dipping my toes into level design, I think. Um, and from there, I started modding uh, the Elder Scrolls games. So Morrowind was a big one for me. Uh, Half-Life, I used a ball hammer editor. made a lot of levels and different mods for that game. Uh, and when I started to study in high school, I wanted to learn how to program because so far I have mostly been doing uh, game design, level design, art, music, but I have, hadn't really programmed that much, just a little bit of scripting in, in Warcraft 3. Uh, so that was kind of my main focus during high school and also during university. And that was kind of the path I took to, to become a game developer. So I've always been, you know, making games in one way or another and been playing games. Yeah, I noticed you say Half-Life, just to make you feel extra old, it celebrated its 25th anniversary uh, <laughs> very recently. Um, there's a wonderful documentary celebrating its creation. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that game, of course, it still holds up. Maybe I'm not sure. the last level, though. But <laughs> I had to get it out the door. Julian, how about yourself? How did you make your start? For me, it also started very early. I think it was in kindergarten even where I started just drawing maps of a dungeon and then I would run through the backyard in the kindergarten and imagining we were actually running through a dungeon and all the monsters. I had states, like levels drawn with monsters. Oh, that's a big buzz. That was the the very beginning. I was very influenced and interested in video games earlier on. And then the next step was me discovering the RPG Maker engine. RPG Maker 95, and then later on RPG Maker XP, where I would just start dozens of game projects and figuring out how it works, setting up events and cause and effect kind of things. And that had me invested for a long time, but I never really dabbled with an actual a sophisticated engine. That came later when Frederick hit me up to start making games with him, and that's where actually started using Unity and implementing the art and being a part of a project that's going to be finished in two or three years. Okay. I do love that beginnings of uh, dungeon crawling. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, oh. Uh, I... Dungeon running, I should say. <laughs> right. <clears throat> Next question. As creators, what do you believe are your biggest influences? Yeah, do you want to start, Julian? I'll, t- I'll let you take this one first. So it's not just games. Obviously, it's a lot of games that I played, but I take a lot of inspiration from books that I've read, novels that left me with a profound feeling. Same with movies, um, music. There's a lot of goes into that. what makes the idea of, oh, I want to make a game like this. Um, but it's definitely games that left an impression on me. Is something like Shadow of the Colossus, for example, where I first learned, okay, a game can be more than just gamey but instead tell your story in a way that no other media can and that kind of pushed me in the direction of i i want to do something like this um and tell a story or show some nice art have someone discover a place where they just go wow this looks amazing 
So there's a lot of influence. Uh, hard to pinpoint just a single one, I think. Is this normally the way? What are you, Frederick? Yeah, the same thing absolutely applies to me. I'm so interested in all types of art forms, music, movies, games. So I find inspiration everywhere, basically. And I think games are just the perfect medium for me because it makes it possible for me to kind of dabble in all those different domains. You know, I, I love writing, I love painting, I love doing music, I love game design, and, and games are just the perfect uh, combination uh, or culmination of all those. So, I mean, of course, uh, Nintendo has been a, a big influence on me if, if you look at game design and games in general. Zelda, huge artistic inspiration, um, and, and many other early games uh, that I played when I was younger, like Roller Coaster Tycoon, of course. Uh, but also some games that I found when I was uh, a bit older, like like StarCraft and uh, Minecraft, uh, have absolutely have big inspiration sources. The point you made about video games encompassing many other mediums is so very true. I do marvel at musicians spending three years doing an album. Like, I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, I get it. The creative process is hard, but just anyway, <laughs> try making a video game. You've got to do that and everything else. <laughs> Yeah, so, that's what I love about games. <laughs> yeah, it makes it very exciting. It does. bring on all of these instances. It does. You never get bored with making games. It's, um, you know, I, I could make uh, music for one year, but then it's like, oh, but no, it looks so much fun to draw and make some art, you know. So, I, I, And then you look at writing and wow, that looks exciting. So yeah. you just start jumping between them, but, but you can do all of them at the same time in games. So it's really nice. Next question. What video game developer do you admire most and why? I can take that. I recently came to the realization that From Software is probably the greatest company in the world. They just keep delivering on on all parts in their games. It's just even just the trailers they make are have an artistic merit to them. They, I think, the Armored Core Six trailer I watched forty times by now, and it still has my hair stand on end. And their games overall are just great experiences, and they push the medium and create actual new genres with the Souls-like genre, for example. Um, and also, honorable mentions for me are Team Ico, who is now called Gen Design, who made Ico, Shadow of the Colossus, and The Last Guardian, which were one of my favorite games, as well as um, that game company who made Journey and Sky, Children of the Light, because their art direction is just out there. It's, they look so incredibly good, their games. So I think these Excellent, yeah, I totally agree with. I always find um, Elder Sign being uh, defies description. Elden Ring, sorry, defies description. Yeah. It's uh, it, when you try to explain it, it's just like, well, okay, I'm just gonna run out of the cave here, and there's a knight dude. So I go, no, 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 just leave that alone. Look at the size of it, <laughs> and it goes against everything we taught in video games. They go against all of it, and yet it works. Remarkable, Frederick. What about yourself? Yeah, I. I... I'm very inspired by a few different people. Uh, recently, you know, I've been following uh, uh, Andrew Spinks a lot at Terraria. I think he's been doing a great job working on the project for so long. And, and it's a really great community. And I was working with the community. It's just, uh, I think, awesome in many ways. Um, you and Andersson at that Paradox, you know, making the grand strategy games over there. I've absolutely been inspiring as well. I, I really love his approach to to game design and building those games. And from a business perspective and like building a company, I think uh, Frederick Vester at Paradox is also an inspiration source. I think he's doing a really cool job with how he's thinking about IP strategies and building, um, you know, a dev company that kind of sustains for a long 
time period. Uh, Jonathan Blow, Notch, they are also really, they have, have done some really amazing work. Uh, so so I think they're, the games that they've been making have, have had a huge impact on me. So they've been inspirational for, for sure. So uh, last question, the first half. It's a valid one, I think. Demonstrate to the audience that you're not living in a bubble. What are you playing right now? Okay, should I start? I can start. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm I'm actually basically only playing one game right now, and that's Total Warhammer, uh, Total War Warhammer Three. I just find it very relaxing. It's uh, it's a, like a chill chill time for me. I think the battles are super cool, and uh, it's it's really fun. But otherwise, you know, I spend most of the time really building the company, building the team, building the games. So. I think there is this joke, you know, when you start making games, you stop playing games. And I think that's, that's kind of true for me in, in, in many ways. You know, I, the older I become, the more time I spend making games and the less time I spend playing games. But yeah, Total War Warhammer 3 has been, I've been playing that a lot. Last I year. think the mixture of the overworld sort of grand strategy and the, the engagements are quite remarkable. It's been a signature of the Total War games. I fully get that. But uh, the uh, Warhammer incarnation is just, so much fun you can play all sorts of different factions with each other it's very fun yeah absolutely yeah julian what are you distracting yourself with these days i've always been a big final fantasy nerd and recently started playing the final fantasy titles that i haven't gotten to so right now i'm playing final fantasy 4 and i'm also hopping into final fantasy 14 now and then just trying to get through content and see what it has to offer and Recently finished Armored Core 6, um, doing everything I could do there. So now I'm yeah, doing Final Fantasy and seeing what next is on the horizon. That's for Final Fantasy. Well, Kane and Rince has covered every single Final Fantasy game. So if you want to know... Oh, that's great. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it was an amazing feat. And now we started doing the side show ones as well, rather than just the main ones. Yeah, the, the, the strange ones as well, the Final Fantasy sort of... But I think we're going to be working on Final Fantasy Tactics next year. Um, Great game. It is. Very, very long game, Julian. Yes. <laughs> Way more than you just thought. 60, double that. Double that. You may just scratch the surface. It's quite long. But a good, good one. Yeah. You're right. It's more than good. It's great. It's an all-timer. So that's the end of the first half. Well done. Let's move on to the second half of the show, where we shall be delving deep, pun intended, everyone, into Core Keeper. Thank you. 
So, before we do delve into Corekeeper, we need to know what it is. Julian and Frederick, what is Corekeeper? It's a multiplayer sandbox game that you play together with other people. You know, it's an adventure game. Uh, so it's set out in a procedurally generated world and you have to kind of find out what's going on down there in the undergrounds where you're teleported to when the game begins. And uh, you fight enemies, you, you gather resources, you build crafts um, and uh, a lot of other cool things. So it's it's really all about the creative aspects and, and really uh, expressing yourself in, in, in various ways. Julian, do you add anything to that? Because I've got some things I, to say. I can't add more to that, I think. Frederick is, is the man to summarize that game in its perfection. He has done these elevator pitches more often than I did. So, <laughs> For me, it is the sort of listener knows. It's a top-down experience. It's a, like it's not isometric. It isn't. It's definitely a top-down experience. It's, it, does, it is pixel art in that very sort of abstract way in that, but it uses way more colors than any of the old, you know, 16-bit machines. In fact, no 16-bit machine could ever hope of attempting to replicate a core keeper. So there's a lot going on. There's a lot to keep track of. There's all sorts of things. And what's very important, and we sort of skipped over it, but what's really important is you are dropped in in the deep end. You are told very little. Just find out. But what's this big thing in the middle? Good question. Need to tell me? No. <laughs> you know, what's this big glowing thing in the middle? What's these, what are these other things? Pods that seem to be linked to it. Well, it's called something. Devourer. Yeah. What's that then? I don't know. What's that? Yeah. Like recess in the middle of it. Good question. Are you going to answer it? Yeah. This is a repeated thing. This is the theme of it's like the wonder of discovery. That's what Core Keeper celebrates, in my opinion. Hopefully that's true. That's always been your intent, one of the pillars, so to speak. It's the wonder Absolutely, of discovery. Yeah. yeah, 100%. Uh, we actually have a, a, a a name for it internally we call it implicit progression where you know there's there's like a progression in the game it's it's very clear but you cannot really tell when you're playing the game right it's like here is a world do whatever you want oh there are some statues here that might hint on you doing something or that you should do something but but you don't really need to take a look at those you can just go in another, another direction if you want so of course it's very inspired by games like you know the elder scrolls and, and valheim as well that has this approach to to the the game's progression it's um it's something we're really focused on uh, in Corekeeper. So, first design question. Here we go. Pushing risk is something the player has to do in order to get the most out of Corekeeper. They really must push the boundaries and leave their base camp. As, as you know, get really deep into the the mines and make paths for themselves and discover things as they do. What aspects of of Corekeeper have you infused to encourage this behavior of you know, you can. It's like an umbilical cord, invisible umbilical cord, linked to your home base camp. Where the further you are away, the more taut that cord becomes, and you have to snap yourself back eventually. What kind of aspects of the game in Corekeeper have you done to encourage this kind of stress, anxiety, but not negative anxiety, but you know, encourage anxiety sort of to push ahead, but not too far. What do you think you've done to encourage this kind of atmosphere and indeed behavior to respond to it? Throughout the whole game development, we've been actively trying to find ways in which the player is always positively reinforced, like this positive feedback reinforcement when you 
decide to interact with different things in the world. And the further you get out, the more crazy we can kind of go with the different types of feedback we add to the game. You know, it can be more risky, it can be more dangerous. But there's always this element of, wow, I might find something really cool. You know, in, in Civilization, you always talk about this, you know, just one more turn. In Core Group, it's like one more tile, you know, just let's just dig one more tile and see what happens, you know, on the other side. Uh, so, so we really try to maximize that feeling that, you, you know, it's just interesting and fun to see what's behind the next tile that you're mining. And I think the procedurally generated world helps with that, uh, the way in which we instantiate the, the kind of enemies that they are kind of simulated in the world. And when you kind of destroy a wall, might suddenly appear like some enemies on the other side that you didn't see before because it was just pitch dark, you know. So so that's uh, very deliberate and, and something we've been working hard on and polishing and iterating. The sparkling of the ores inspired idea kind of reminds me of Dungeon Keeper. But yeah. <laughs> um, I'm not sure if that was your inspiration. But uh... absolutely, yeah, Dungeon Keeper <laughs> one of the, one of the main inspirations for the game. I think you can see that, like, just looking at, especially Dungeon Keeper two. You know, you can see the heart in Dungeon Keeper two, and then you have the core uh, in in Core Keeper. So, so absolutely, like one of the things I really liked about Dungeon Keeper, <laughs> actually, the thing I, f- I found the most entertaining in Dungeon Keeper two was building your base, building you know just doors, traps, thinking about your inhabitants how they were going to live um but it was like a single player there was some multiplayer you could play it with friends but it always ended after like a f- you know 20 30 minutes and I, I just wanted to have like a persistent <laughs> world instead where i kept on building those kind of levels so so that that was absolutely a major inspiration for for all of us i think yeah i think one was to reiterate this i haven't really expressed that and apologies for this but this is a multiplayer game core keeper is from the outset a multiplayer experience you share the wonder you don't sit there you can play on your own as i have done as well but it's really a multiplayer experience as well which allows you to share the mystery and quizzical like what's this i don't know (laughs) but what do you think it will do i don't know it says you can eat it right (laughs) well what happens i don't know much go second head for we know Uh, (laughs) it's it's just i think it's remarkable that you know you really have done a good job of encouraging exploration, encouraging pushing out. But as a later question that delves into another aspect of the game. Before we do that, I want to talk about something which is really pertinent to a survival game, which is at its core, <laughs> or in so much it's part of it. I don't think it is at its core. It happens to be that way in that you have health, of course, that's a resource, but you also have food and hunger. And it's a meter that rests directly underneath your health, and it is constantly decreasing, especially the more you do. I found the more effort you spend on doing something, it decreases more, which makes sense. But, and I can't stress this enough, we talked about From Software earlier, but this is not a game with a stamina bar. So I want you to talk to me about managing the health and well-being of the player character and how you came up with the idea of just having health as an overall number and adjacent to that, and food, but no stamina. Could you talk us through how that came to be? Is it always there, or has it slowly evolved over time? So, generally speaking, I can say that I think stamina is always something that is quite annoying in games. Whenever I play these games, it's not fun. For some reason, in any instance that I've played something with the stamina bar in games like Stardew Valley or so, it, it keeps me from doing the things that I want to do in the game. And so it's, for me, it was never a nice thing. The hunger meter we added as a source of something that keeps you on the toes as well, like extra element when you venture out that you need to keep in check. 
the hunger bar actually used to be more punishing. You would actually die when you when it went to zero. That was not very fun. It had the same annoyance to it as stamina had. So we iterated on that quite a bit. And now it's changed in a way that it has a positive feedback when it well, when it's depleting. So when it's low, it's a bit punishing, and it encourages you to fill it up basically because that having it full is way nicer than than it being empty. There's kind of a more positive aspect to it than rather a negative one. Um, I probably butchered that explanation a little bit. I had it laid out in my head a bit better before, but um, that's basically, we have a more positive feedback to the, the hunger meter now than it was uh, previously. Uh, we had even dabbled with more systems like that. Uh, for example, at one point we tried out um, an oxygen meter where the air in the caves would be very poor. And you had to venture out and in time find pockets to refill your oxygen or refill it through other means, which I think we tested for a day and then we realized that's not fun at all. So it all came back to the hunger meter, which needs to be said that we think we will have a look again at the hunger meter and see if we can make it even better. But uh, when that happened and to what extent that is, we're, we're not super sure yet. I think one of the things I do love about the hunger meter is that it encourages you to cook and come up with all sorts of interesting recipes. And one of the earliest ones I did was a, a mixture between a, a, a fish, a rockfish, and a, and a uh, toadstools or mushrooms. And very nice. But what's lovely about it is not only did it feed me very well, but also give you gave me an extra boost in mining or something or a glow. That kind of exactly. and that's a that's a lovely idea because it encourages you to rather than sit there munching on mushrooms or actually go away and cook. Um, which leads me on to my, my, my third question. Building. You're, you build a lot of things in Core Keeper. It's, it's something I found the most rewarding, if I may. It's just my personal thing. I just love building stuff and making it all nice and neat. And You don't have to, but I'm just like laying it out, putting lovely defences around to stop the big beasties trying to take me out. And there are big beasties out there in the mines. I'm not going to go into details about what they are, but when you find them, oh boy, do you have to be prepared and to, to, to deal with them because they have their own unique ways of uh, defending themselves against you. But yes, things, what I just I find so remarkable is you've got three or four, maybe five layers of resources and then refinement and then you've got also got the improvement of the player character themselves because the more they do of this the more they're rewarded they get they get skills and there's a skill tree everyone and there's you know they get better at doing things it's all you know numbers going up <laughs> but it's not just numbers there's a visual feedback as well it just feels like initially you're in this dark dingy little cave filled with these shrines and now you make it your own and you light it put walls everywhere you put um you just make it your own it's quite incredible and i just think i am really really impressed of how much effort's been put into creating this aspect of core keeper could you describe how this has evolved over time was it always this rich and detailed or is it feature added to the point where we went okay stop there we can't do any more Oh, we keep on adding stuff, you know, still. <laughs> it's it's such a fun system to work with. I think a lot of it comes down to Julian's amazing artwork as well. You know, there is so much great variation in there. Uh, it's so much fun to work with and build stuff with. So um, in terms of the system design and the different systems, I think that's also something we will keep expanding on. You know, we have some automation, for example, in the game, but we think it's 
far from where we want to take it, right? It's, uh, it's just the beginning of what we have right now. And I think that applies to most of the systems, to be, to be honest. Like, there's so much stuff we still want to improve and, and put in there. Yeah, Julian, do you want to add as well? Too? Yeah, the, the thing you said about making it your own, I think that is also a base aspect of of this like you discover this world there's not much to it in the beginning and then you start making it your own your own basically um and you give it a place to tell your own story you could role play in this and um there's also the aspect of base building feeling very rewarding and homely building your own home and there is that it creates the contrast to the scary caves out there that contrast of cozy home and scary caves is, is very strong and makes the experience much so better if there were just a cozy home it wouldn't affect you much and if it were just scary caves that effect would also taper off at some point but with this strong contrast which is almost as basic as shining a light in the darkness that makes it so very rewarding the darkness wouldn't feel as scary if you weren't come from a warm home with nice floor and a couch somewhere and vice versa. It's very nice. It's always very rewarding coming back from your adventures, barely surviving maybe, coming home and finding your your plants grown, your pets and cattle flourishing, and you have just new materials to expand that home. So yes, I didn't mention that. Thank you, Julian. I should have mentioned that the pets and the and the you know the crops you make and you get, you get your own menagerie and then work tops. It's all there, everyone, and it's all you make it. It's definitely a case of you stepping back and go, you know, factorio like, go, look, I made that, you know, and exactly. it's, it's just call it the factorio effect. Well done, but it, it does run a, a sort of there's another game with a game named Keeper in it, which is Dome Keeper, which is also featured on this show, and uh, there's some similarities between, but with Dome Keeper, you're in a sense of danger all of the time. <laughs> Because <laughs> mm-hmm. when you're up above, you're trying to defend a dome from creatures that are trying to destroy you. And when you go below, you're running out of air and it's running out of time. So, yeah, constant scent of anxiety. Great. But still, a similar experience in some regard. So, that is true. There's one more resource that I haven't spoken about, and we need to talk about it, Julian. Which <laughs> is to you, I think. Light. Light is treated as a resource in Core Keeper. You are thrown into this dim cavern it's this this you know there's this sculpture that you find in a jungle and you touch it and you find yourself transported into a place you don't even know if it's still on earth might not be i'm not going to go there but point is you've been been transported into this place it's dim and dark and the first thing you have in your backpack is a torch convenient decide to uh, light that torch start dropping them everywhere and just make them make places you can see everywhere but i believe it to be a form of a resource I can know, I think I pretty understand why this is. It keeps in theme. It, it makes sense. You're in the underground. Why would there be any light? There, there shouldn't be. There might be some lights coming through fissures in the ground above, but other than that, it's to know. So I have to ask, how have you found really managing this additional resource and making sure the player isn't somehow frustrated by this lack of light? And once they get into the rhythm of having a clutch of torches with them at all time, at least initially there's other ways of dealing with it, how have you found infusing this aspect of the game and maintaining the sense of, don't forget, light's a resource? So this has very strong game design implications. And at this point, I think Frederick has a better idea of how this came to be. I think he this was one of the first aspects of starting the game and why he wanted to make that game specifically. So I let Frederick answer that. Oh, thank you, Julian. Yeah, so it's actually quite a long story. Um, like many, many years ago, I started dabbling with 
indirect lighting algorithms for pixel art games, like basically rotating the game, rendering it in 3D, projecting it into the 2D pixel art. And it's not been done in a lot of games. I know like Enter the Gungeon did it. It did it ex- super well. So we all, also looked at that like stylistically, of course. But some of the reasons why it really f- makes sense in a game like this, um, apart from it looking amazing, is that first of all, you know, it keeps the surprise of what happens on the other side of the tile that I mentioned before. It adds even more to that because you never know what's on the other side. You also get this negative space on every screen that you look at, which makes it even more relaxing to look at. And it also, I think, improves the overall composition of the image in many uh, situations. So I think that also helps if you're sharing this game and showing it to somebody else. It makes it pop because it looks very different to another game, you know. It's it's very rare that games are this dark uh, and has this huge contrast between coziness that Julian mentioned and and uh, darkness. Uh, and then finally, I think it adds its own little unique selling point to the game that a lot of similar games don't really have the uh, opportunity to give because it's a very tech-based solution. It, it requires uh, a lot of technical know-how to to implement it and get it right. And then you also need a really good art direction to make it sure it looks good so it doesn't just look like a technical feat you know so and combining those two is is kind of rare it's it's not super easy to to find such a good match you know so so those are just some of the parts why it's so important to us and why we have decided to use it kind of as a resource in the game where it's apparent in in everything you do basically yeah it's one thing that struck me when i first saw it it's the lighting design and you're right there's a symbiosis the technology aspect of course there is all that maths and physics dealing with the light splashing and how it moves relative to where the player is and where well where the light source is and where the player is, and then what's the actual making it interesting. I think one of the most pleasing things is when I encounter a large body of water. That's for me the water effects you've done is really really good, and I just 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 I don't know it's quite serene when that happens. Yeah, shout out um, to Felix who made the implementation of the water. Yeah. It uh, did a great job with that. And the indirect lighting, he he took over it a little bit after the early access release, and he's been improving it so much. It's, it's uh, you know blowing our minds every day, basically. You know the work he's doing. So shout out to you, Felix. <laughs> yeah, I just it's like kind of water you can hear, even though it's not making any sound. Yeah, you, see yeah. that, you know that bloop sound. It's you know it's wonderful. But no, it's just very visually pleasing. There have been times when I've stopped. I didn't have to stop, but I would. I'm like in the middle of something. Oh, this is this is nice. I need to take a rest. Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's something I do enjoy. Do enjoy it. There's so much more to talk about in Core Keepers. You can hear everyone, but uh, we have a limited amount of time with uh, Julian and Frederick, and they've been wonderful sharing their thoughts and uh, experiences with creating. Core. So it's been developed by Pugstorm, which is a wonderful name for a studio. Where's, <laughs> where's it come from? <laughs> That's a fun story as well. So I remember us sitting down and like brainstorming. We had like a long list of 100 names or whatever and kind of tried to find out which ones were available and which ones were not. We had a little list of the ones that we thought were the best. I think if I remember correctly, Parkstorm was what uh, I I proposed it. And the reason I liked it was that I'm typically just way too serious about things. Like I'm I'm, like, that's one of my biggest flaws and biggest Uh, pros as well i think is i just go too hardcore and, and be too serious about things so so Pugstrom was a, a little way of making things a little bit more unserious let's say and more fun uh so 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 that's that's one of the reasons and then 
I really, we really liked the this image of you know just pugs raining down on the onto the to the world. It's kind of like yeah. a funny image, I think. I've just got a uh, vision of, um, of 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 pugs in a in a whirlwind. Yeah, yeah, something like that. And and Julian, you might have some to add there as well. You made the first like artworks for it with the logo and everything, and it was just so much fun. I think. Yeah, we we just like pugs as well. It's it's such a nice, goofy looking breed sometimes, but they're whenever I see a pug on the street, I I melt instantly. Yeah. <laughs> like, and, and we used to watch PewDiePie a lot at that time as well, so I think that that is know. true. And he has pugs as well. So yeah. when we connect with PewDiePie as well uh, mentally, I think um, um, he's a very inspiring person. But uh, it boils really just down to these simple explanations. There's not a bigger thought behind that rather than just imagine that. Um, that's a funny, goofy name. It kind of it kind of encapsulates what kind of games we make that are not too serious, a bit more on the goofy side, and that's the whole story. I find it interesting, Frederick saying he's envies the goofballs of the world. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just, yeah, just, yeah. just to be able to let go and not take everything so seriously, like just breathe. Like, I'll try. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wonderful. Now it's also published. It's also published by Fireshine Games, and it's available on what platforms? It's available on Steam, uh, and it's coming to all the major console next year, 2024. You know, the Switch, the PlayStation, Xbox. So, yeah, yeah, big news. Provided the Switch is the thing, still. Let's not go there. I'm sure it is. It's kind of overdue. Just say Nintendo. Anyway, Nintendo, do this. But anyway, Frederick and Julian, it's been wonderful having you on the show. It really, really has. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Thank Chris. you for having us. That was wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. And there it is. Another episode in the can. Thank you so much for listening. I had a great time talking to Frederick and Julian, as you could tell. Next episode is episode 481. will feature Xenotilt Hostile Pinball Action, all in caps. It's a modern take on a very old pinball variant. It's been developed by Flab and Wizenwar, from whom I shall be talking to Adam Ferrando about how this game was made. But until then, thanks for listening. Bye! You have been listening to the Sausage Factory podcast part of the Cane and Rinse Collective. Support us for just two US dollars per month at patreon.com forward slash Cane and Rinse for early, extended and exclusive podcasts. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube and at our website caneandrinse.com.